Okay, our uh, catechism question that we're doing today is question number 14 in the Shorter Catechism. We're continuing our series there. And uh, just do a little bit of review when we think about the whole catechism. After it opens by telling us what our chief end is, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then it tells us how the Scriptures are the that which guide us in knowing how to glorify and enjoy God. And then we and then it speaks of who God is and it talks about the Trinity and such things. And then it tells us about the decrees of God, the plan that He has, that are carried the plans that are carried out by first his work of creation, where he made everything according to his plan, and then his providence where he he governs all of those things and preserves them and, and brings about his purposes through them for his glory. And then the Catechism speaks about the arrangement that God made with us when we were first created. An arrangement which he made a covenant with us, which we broke. We're presently in the section that, that looks at that and breaks it down in different components the whole idea of God establishing that covenant, what that was like, and then of us breaking it and the consequences that came as a result of that. We'll be looking at this subject, we've already been looking at it for a while, and we'll be looking at it for about five more weeks. So uh, let's review what we have done so far in this particular aspect of uh, the arrangement God made when we were first created and how we, we fell from that. So we'll begin with question 12 and um, reviewing these questions together. Question 12, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him, forbidding him to eat. Of the, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, need to, I guess I need to read. When God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So in this covenant, God, who made us upright with the ability to obey him perfectly, also gave us a prohibition by which he could, we could reject him as our God. Then we would leave the estate in which he created us, where we were living in harmony with God as our God. Question 13 asks about that. What did we do in this initial arrangement? So let's do this one together now. Question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. So the wording of this question is set up for the next two questions. You notice how it doesn't tell us what they did, but just that they fell from the estate wherein they were created. So by, by, by sinning. So the uh, first question is, what is sin? And that's our question that we'll be looking at today. And then the question that we'll be looking at next week, Lord willing, is what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? So let's confess together this week's question, question 14. 
What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, in exploring this question today, what is sin? I want to begin with what you all already know. You all know that sin is doing wrong. We all have a conscience and we know what it is to violate our conscience. Often we may not want to admit that we have done wrong when we have, but we know that we have. We may try to justify what we've done by making excuses or by blaming other people. We try to justify it in our own mind as well as to others. Sometimes we even go all the way back into our childhood to explain why we have behaved badly. The reasons that we have because we have been mistreated and we have been wronged in some way. It's almost as if we're trying to say something like, well, you see, I'm really a good person. I only do things that are wrong because of all the wrong that has been done to me or because of the difficult situations that I'm put into. Uh, I would be good if I didn't have all of these pressures from the evil that is outside of me and all these wounds that I have within me from all the wrongs that have been done to me. It's interesting that some in the world wanted to propose the idea that if we were to escape poverty, then we would not sin. The reason we sin is because we don't have all of our needs met. But uh, that's about as far from the truth as you can get. Um, People that have great wealth sin just as much as people who are in poverty. So these are just dreams that people have of, I'm really good on the inside. You see, Romans 2, 14 through 15 speaks about how even people who do not know God's written law actually show in the way that they behave that they have a sense of right and wrong. And part of that is even doing things that that are right as their, their conscience would reprove them when they don't. They do certain things. And, and when somebody does you wrong, though, they really show that they have this sense of right and wrong. Somebody does you wrong, what do you do? Well, you appeal to this sense of right and wrong that we all have to accuse the other person. You say, look at what you did. Or to other people, look at what so-and-so did to me. Isn't that awful? If someone lied about jewelry that they were selling to you and said that there was a certain amount of gold in it and when there wasn't that much gold and you found out about it, you'd say, hey, you know, you cheated me. You did wrong. And you would tell other people. They, they, they lied to me about how much, how much gold was in that, um, in that ring that I bought or whatever it is. You appeal to the standard of right and wrong. And when you do wrong, then you respond to this sense of right and wrong often in a different way by making excuses. If you're the one that sold the jewelry, then you reply by saying, well, hey, I didn't do any more than anybody else that's selling jewelry does. They all exaggerate a little bit and I can't compete. I go out of business if I, if I didn't uh, do like everybody else does. I'm put into a situation where I have to do this. I can't compete otherwise. So in both cases, you see though, by your actions there, you show that you have a sense of, of right and wrong. That, that you know that there's right and wrong. 
Listen to what it says in Romans 2, 14 and 15 about this. It says, for when Gentiles, okay, talking about people that are outside of fellowship with God, outside of the community of God's people altogether, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they don't have God's commandments, they don't know the commandments, when they by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong at the core of them. And you see, they, they accuse other people. You did me wrong. And they excuse people that they're on side with or they excuse themselves. Well, I, I did that because of this or, or, or whatever. But they have, that, they have that sense. They know that wrong has been done. We also know that sin is doing wrong to other people. When we talk about sin, we often speak of sinning against someone. The Bible speaks of it that way. That's the way to say when you sin, you do something against others. To put it in terms of the golden rule, we do something against them that we would not want them to do to us. This shows that we recognize that there is a personal Not only is there right and wrong, but there is also a personal element to sin. Sometimes we tell people that we have done wrong to, oh, you know, don't take it personally. (laughs) You know, I didn't mean it against you. It was not an attack against you. Uh, But it is a kind of attack against them. That's why we say that. Of course, when it is only that we have displeased them, that's a different story. You know, we, we also know, or at least we ought to know, that when we haven't just because someone is displeased, it doesn't mean that we've done wrong. People can be displeased when they ought not to be displeased. For example, your boss at the jewelry store that I was talking about before wants you to lie to the customers, and you refuse. You say, I can't, I can't lie to these customers, and you displease your boss, and he would say, you wronged me. Well, you didn't sin against him. You didn't wrong him because... You did the right thing. He was asking you to wrong others and you refused. Deep down, he knows that that's right too. Although we already saw how he will try to make excuses within himself and to others to excuse the wrong that he knows he's done. Well, I can't compete in this unfair marketplace with all the high taxes that I have to pay and with the other jewelers that also exaggerate. And then I can't pay my employees and I can't provide for my family. So what he basically is saying is, I'm lying about the jewelry because I'm doing good here. This is a good thing that I'm doing. And he tries to justify it. We all, we, we find all kinds of snaky, sneaky ways to do that in our own minds how we can turn things all around and boy, you know, I'm just the, the, the guy with the, the, the white clothes that's walking around doing the right thing everywhere I go. And, uh, you know, you'd do this too if you were in my situation, whatever it is. He tries to make his cheating in this case into a virtue. Now, because of all this twisting that we do, things can get pretty distorted, especially when you have a whole society that's joined together doing the twisting over a number of generations. You can come up with all kinds of things that you think are quite virtuous that are not virtuous at all and distortions of what's right and what's wrong. 
And that's very obvious when we look at the diversity that is in society about what is right and what is wrong. Certainly in the case, isn't it, when you get into a quarrel with another person, very rarely does either person think that they are in the wrong. You know, we twist things around so that we can claim to be innocent. Well, guess what? They're not both doing the right thing when, they, when there's a conflict with each other like that. We also see how over time societies can terribly twist things to where, as I mentioned, when we get together and do this, we can come up with some very crazy things about right and wrong. Get to the place where there are huge distortions, but distortions that pretty much everybody consents to in the society and figures okay, considers even to be right. For example, there are societies who reach the place where their offspring, their children, would be offered by them as sacrifices to idols. And they didn't do this because they hated their children. They did this as a sacrifice to appease their gods so that they would send rain or something like that. And it became thought of with among them as a virtuous, noble act. A great sacrifice that someone's made. Like if somebody gives away a great fortune to feed the poor or something like that. Well, these people were giving their child in order to bring good into the society somehow. Something that's very displeasing to God, but they consider good. Or you think about a, uh, a radical Muslim in, in a society that where, where someone carries out an action such as you know, crashing planes into a, uh, the World Trade Towers and to attack people that they would say were blaspheming Allah is considered a virtuous act. They're doing something that's noble and that is worthy of reward. And some of them believe that they really are doing something noble. In our society, we now have women who go to pro-abortion rallies where they announce, I had an abortion amidst cheering fans, people who are, who are screaming with delight that what a, what, a, what a thing this was that you did. They consider it a virtue to do this because they believe that they're defending personal freedom that everyone should have, a right to decide whether I can keep my baby alive or kill my baby. Surely they have pangs of conscience, else they would not do these rallies where they're, where they're trying to promote it. It's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Why do you do a rally to say it's a good thing? You say, oh, because people, other people think it's bad. But you must think it's bad, too, if you're, if you're doing that. And many of them, though, even in that situation, they convince themselves that these pangs of conscience that I have about this are bad. And I need to purge myself and help other people to purge themselves from these pangs of conscience that are put on us from outside. And so you see how we can get very, very twisted and distorted about what's right and wrong. And even in the visible church, you have people that, for example, come to the place over the generations where they think it's a virtue to, to pray to, um, to Mary and ask her to to intercede and pray for us and d diminish the, the glory of Christ as our mediator, the, the intercessory mediator that 
that he is who welcomes us as we come to him. Why would we go to another when we can go to Christ? But that becomes something that's this virtuous and that they encourage one another to do and talk about how good it is and how good it makes them feel. It should be obvious to anyone that everyone is not right. What one person considers to be sinful, another person considers to be right and good. Now, while all may agree that sin is doing wrong, it's clear that we do not all agree about what is right and what is wrong. So the question arises, what is sin? Is it what you think sin is? Well, I should hope not, because like we saw, people will clash with each other. You know, I, I, it's, it's good for me to crash plane into the world trade, whatever. What most people think? Which most people? The people in your society? People in the whole world collectively? Well, that's not going to come out very well. Which people? And at what time in history? Because people thought this was good in one time. They thought that was good in another time. Or is it the civil magistrate? Are they the ones that decide, oh, this is good based on what they say with, with their laws? Oh, it's okay now because civil magistrate said it was okay. Is it what my religion says or, or my church? You know, where do we go? Obviously, to define sin properly, we need to have an objective standard, a universal standard. And that brings us to the next point. We have one. And that's what the Catechism teaches us, you see. The true standard for right and wrong is God's law. That's what the Catechism says, and that's what the Bible says. The Catechism, of course, gets it from the Bible. The Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So you see here, this is important. The Catechism, instead of just telling us that sin is doing wrong which it is, catechism points us to the standard of right and wrong, the law of God. And it says it's going contrary to the standard that sin. It's not what you think is wrong necessarily, but it's doing wrong as it is given to us from God himself. Of course, we've already learned from the catechism that the Holy Scriptures are the only rule of faith and obedience of right and wrong. So we find the law of God in the Bible as a whole. The catechism gets this definition, as I said, from, of sin from scriptures. Scripture testifies that sin is, not, is living out of accordance with God's law. We will, we'll, we'll have our scripture reading now from John's first epistle. I waited to have it till now because I wanted to do that introduction first. But we'll, for, where sin is described by John is lawlessness, as being without God's law. So the reading is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3.10. So listen carefully and reverently. This is the word of God. 1 John 3.28. I'm sorry, 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, 
but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And let me just uh, pause here for a few minutes and mention that, you see, it's saying that, that when we know God, then we become his children and his family, and then we live by a different standard. Then we live according to God's standard rather than some arbitrary standard that we got from somewhere else. And so the world doesn't know us anymore because we're living by different principles than this fallen world. So it goes on to explain there's a difference between those who are God's people and those who are not. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested, Christ was manifested, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The person hasn't been converted. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. And this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. There will end the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our understanding. Notice how he describes sin here. Again, we're, we're children of God. We're joined to God. We're living now according to his ways. We've come to him. So 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The, world, the word lawlessness means without law. A lawless person is one that does not have the standard that we're talking about here. The one standard which is God's standard. The idea here is that when you sin, you live as if this standard is not. You live as if, as if God who sees you and knows all your ways has no authority over us and no standard by which we should live. So you see, you begin to say, oh, well, I did this because uh, I had to do it to compete. I had to lie about how much gold was in the jewel because I, was, I had to compete. And you set up a new standard. To sin, you set aside his law to go your own way. Sin is lawlessness. The law in view here is the moral law of God. What is the moral law? Well, the moral law is the unchanging standard of conduct that is ours by the nature of who we are, by nature of what God created us to be. It's not arbitrary, the moral law, or changeable, but it's the standard of what is truly right and truly wrong according to the one and only standard, according to the nature of who we are and who God is, the nature of who we are by creation before our God. In short, it requires that we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Like, my neighbor is like me, 
So I shouldn't cheat him any more than I would want him to cheat me. I need to live together in the according to the morals that God has established with my neighbor. I need to do what is required. That, that moral law, you see, it cannot change as long as God is God and as long as people are people. You see, this will always be what is required of us. Like a command such as the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that could change. It's not a moral law. It's what's called a positive law, one that is imposed by authority that is not rooted in morality as such. So God could say, don't eat from that tree. And then later he could say, okay, now you can eat from that tree. He could say, don't eat from this tree now. Those aren't moral commandments. Things like circumcision and baptism, those are, we're commanded, in the Old Testament, we're commanded to be circumcised, in the New Testament, to be baptized. And those are things that we should obey because God has, they're ordinances of God, but they're not moral laws that always stand by the nature of things. Such laws as these can change because they're not moral, you see. The moral law is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to us because sin made us muddled, as we've seen, about what is right and what is wrong. The Ten Commandments tell us what we should have known to be sin from our creation, but what got all muddled up in our minds. Like, take the first commandment. Well, of course, the only God that you should worship is the true God who created you. You don't, you don't go worshiping some demon, some angel, or, 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 or something like that. We have no other gods before God. And take the fourth commandment. Of course, we ought to remember the day that God set apart from creation and made holy in order to uh, celebrate his finished creation and the day that he appointed for us to come and be blessed and to, to commune with him. Well, of course, you shouldn't work on that day. You should keep that day holy. It's a day when you rest from your, your labors as God did from his. And now you, you spend the day in, uh, in praising and worshiping of God. That, uh, you see, that's something that we should have known. But what do we do? We start to justify it and say, well, oh, I've got extra work to do. And, oh, you know, there, there's this and God must have not meant this and we can do that. And, and you, you set it aside and you think I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong after a while. That's how the world had gone. And so that's why God had to give us the Ten Commandments. When he, when he redeemed his people, he said, look, I got I to gotta reset you guys in what's moral because you're all over the place. Let's go back to the basics. Here are Ten Commandments to summarize how you're to live in this world. The things that you have twisted. Honoring father and mother. See, in our sinful ways, we get away from that. Honoring others in our authority. Sometimes you have periods where authorities will be abusive, and that's a violation of the fifth commandment. Other times you have uh, times when people will be insubordinate, refuse to submit to authority and to be guided by them. And of course, we shouldn't kill or hate. Rather, we should preserve life. Of course, we should honor God's institution of marriage not commit adultery or fornication so as to destroy the whole arrangement that God appointed to us for us from the start, where man and woman become one flesh, live together, and bring forth children, and 
and live in harmony with as one flesh together in, in unity with each other. No other standard will do. But we have all kinds of other standards, don't we? And we, we drift over, drift over from one standard to another. Let's look at several examples. First, here's one for religious people. Setting up man-made traditions as the standard. Jesus accused the Jews of his day of this in Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Then the scribes and Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They're doing wrong because of the standard that men have set up, the elders have set up. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This was a ceremonial washing that they had come up with to be extra pure, you see. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? He's saying, your your tradition is actually getting in the way of God's moral law. He says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. Like, this is a big deal. Capital offense if you curse your father and mother. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, and then he need not honor his father and mother, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You see what these guys were doing? They, they were saying, this is, a, this is dedicated to God. Like, oh, my property, it's dedicated to God. So that means that, oh, my parents are, are in need. I, I can't help them because I, I dedicate all this stuff to God. So I can't, I can't use it for, for helping my parents out. Jesus said, you're breaking God's commandment. God's commandment says, honor your father and mother. If they're in need, they're the first people that you need to help. See, this doesn't mean that all traditions are bad. The problem occurs when you make your traditions a standard instead of God's law. One of our traditions, we might call it today a customary way of behaving, is that we don't like to tell anybody else that they're wrong about anything. Yet the Bible tells us that when our brother sins, we need to go and and tell him of the wrong that he has done and and try to restore him and call him to repent. Oh, well, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. I don't, I don't want, I'd be looked at as a bad person if, if I did that to, to people. I, I'm just going to let my brother go on off and, and get into whatever sins and drunkenness and go astray and whatever. I'm not, I'm not going to, I can't do that to my brother. I can't go to him and, and, and try to call him to repent. See, our tradition of being nice keeps us from loving our brother. It keeps us from obeying God. Yet we feel that it was the right thing to do because there's a, there's, there's a custom in that way. Second substitute for God's law is human expectations. When you make human expectations the standard instead of God's law, you know, how well you perform in school becomes more important than whether you honor God with your, your life. How well you do on the ball field becomes more important than whether you keep the commandments of God. Parents who emphasize success to their children err if they so emphasize achievement that they set aside God's law. 
for example, so that their child cheats in school in order to make his marks or feels compelled to study his lessons on the Sabbath because passing Monday's test is more important than keeping the Lord's day holy or spend so much time training for a sport that they do not serve others. The child feels that being the best hockey player is more important than loving his neighbor. That's to set up uh, our human expectations as the standard. Thirdly, we make our feelings and sentiments our standards. God's law, his guide for living, must be your standard and not your feelings. Some people reject a capital punishment because it seems too harsh. Then they do the same thing with, with spanking children. But that's to make your feelings the rule rather than the word of God. Others going by their feelings about things conclude that sexual relations outside of a proper marriage is a fine way and a proper way to express love to your neighbor. They make their personal desires and how it makes them feel to engage in sexual relations with someone they're not married to. They they make that to be the standard, how they feel about it. We must rather go by the standard of God's law. So having settled that we must go by God's law as our standard to determine what sin is, I now want to consider the implications of sin being seen as conduct that is against God's law. Against, I should stress the word, God's law. How does that affect the way you look at sin when you realize that it's against God's law? Consider that sin takes on a greater significance when we realize that it is God's law that is broken when we sin. Because it is God's law, breaking it is a personal attack against God. Remember how I said before that sin has a personal element? We say, oh no, it's not personal. It is personal. It's His will. It's His law that you transgress. He is a personal God. It's not just a book of rules or a table of commandments on stone tablets that you violate when you sin against God. You sin against God himself, the living God. You cannot act in a way that is contrary to his law without being contrary to God. In Psalm 51, David really shows that he recognizes this whole idea that sin is a personal attack against God when he says, Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's why David was so grieved when he came to admit his sin. You see, before that, you say, oh, well, it was David committed adultery. You say, oh, well, it was a beautiful woman. And, you know, I was just drawn away. It was nothing against you, God. You, You can't do that. David says, no, no, it was against God that I did this. It was against God that I took that woman in adultery. It was against God that I arranged for her husband to be killed on the battlefield. I did that sin against you and you only. David doesn't mean it wasn't against uh, other people. But he means that ultimately when you boil it down, whose standard is it that he broke? It was God's standard. Now, what makes sin so sinful then is that at its core... It is a repudiation of God, of all that God is. When you sin, you reject Him. It's a personal assault on Him. You reject His wisdom. 
you have a better way. We see, God, I've got to cheat because I can't compete if I don't cheat. This is a better way. Uh, You reject his goodness as if keeping his way would be harmful. I'll go broke if I don't do this. And God, you're going to put me in a situation that's untenable, that is is unfair and unjust. So you're not good. If I obey you, it's, it's going to go wrong. You reject his holiness and justice as if he's not the judge. No, 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 I, I, I've got a different opinion here than God. I'm, I think it's to be this way. You reject his honor and majesty as if he has no right to rule over you. Well, who are you to tell me what to do with my body? You reject his omniscience as if he doesn't see what you're doing. He's somewhere else. He's not really paying any attention. He's going about something else. and you, You're doing this over here. and he, he doesn't know. You know, we're all like that, aren't we? I mean, do you ever do something that you'd be ashamed to do in front of other people? Well, guess what? You did it in front of God. <laughs> there you go. You deny his omniscience, who he is. You reject his grace. You don't look to him to sustain you. You don't look to him to preserve you in his way, in his good way that he has given you. So see, when you see breaking God's law as a personal attack, it, it, it really changes the way you look at it. When you see breaking God's law as a personal attack against God, it changes the way you look at his law itself. You see that it not only speaks to your actions, but also to your thoughts and motives. Again, you're not merely dealing with a list of rules, but you're living before God Almighty, the Holy One who sees your motives as well as your actions. He knows if you hate your brother, even if you're being sweet on the outside and outwardly don't show that you hate him. God knows. He knows if you're rebelling against the order that he has established for families by lusting. You don't even have to do anything physical to war against the arrangement that God made in the world. The good arrangement with husbands and wives is one flesh. Get yourself caught up in a a romance novel or movie or something like that where you're going away from the arrangement that God has made. He knows if you're cursing him in your heart. It's all open and naked before his face. All the filth and all of the sin. Even if you say no curse word, you're setting yourself up as the one who decides what is cursed and what is blessed. Instead of leaving that to your creator, he alone has the authority to curse and bless. When you see it as a personal attack against God as well, your sin, then it causes you to recognize that Looking at God, you see God's law in a different way. You recognize that when God forbids something, it also means that he requires something. When he requires something, it also means that he forbids something. So you're not dealing, you see, with just a, again, law rule book. You're dealing with what pleases God. What pleases a personal living God. So when it says don't kill, that means that you ought to do things that will preserve your neighbor's life, to do things to take care of him, to preserve his well-being and health. And when it says not to steal, it surely means that it is your heavenly father's will for you to give to someone. If you don't deprive them of something that will put them in poverty, Would it not also be God's will if you see them in poverty 
that you would do what you can to relieve their poverty, giving them what is theirs in some cases, like a fair wage. You're stealing if you set up an arrangement where you don't give someone a fair wage that's working for you. you might be a, You might say, well, I did the minimum wage. But if it's not a fair wage for that person, you're stealing from them. Or if, if you don't give an honest day's work for your day's wage, where you don't do the work that you're supposed to do, you're goofing around, surfing the internet when you're at work or, or whatever it is, or in giving to someone who is in need. When they haven't worked for you, you haven't worked for them, but you see their need. See, that's what God wants you to do when he says don't steal. If, it, if it's a personal thing, if it's not personal, then you just check off, well, I didn't take anything from anybody, and you're done. When told to honor your father and mother, you know that he wants you to show honor to other people that are authorities in your life. God's arranged the world with people that are over us, people that are under us. We're to treat everyone in an appropriate way. Most of all, when you understand that sin is a personal attack against God, it changes the way that you view sin. You see that it is terribly wrong. What you don't see if you don't recognize that it is God's law. You're dreadfully guilty because by sin you reject God as God. You've treated your gracious, just, wise, holy, sovereign Lord as if he is not Lord at all, as if he is not God. It helps you to understand why hell is the punishment that God has appointed for sinners and why it was necessary for his own son to die on the cross in order to atone for that sin. Sin becomes, as Paul said, utterly sinful. But this is not all so bad painful to see your sin and how wicked and wrong it is, but it's also a good thing because when you see your sin that way, it brings you to the best thing of all. When you see your sin as a repudiation of God, it prepares you to return to God through Jesus Christ. Not just to repent before a law book, but to repent before the God that you have offended. You see that you need his righteousness and forgiveness. Indeed you do. Christ must stand in your place. Only his life representing you is acceptable to God. You have personally assaulted your creator by your behavior. You have set your creator aside as if he were not God. But Jesus has lived in a way that pleased the father for our sake. He represents all of us so that by faith in him, we're accepted through him, with him. He's accepted and we're with him accepted. God looks upon all of us who are trusting in Christ as one. We have become one with him through faith. And because he accepts him, he accepts all of us, all who believe. And you see also how necessary it is that Christ bear your sins. Only his sacrifice is able to take away your sins. You see, before I was talking about he has to behave rightly as our representative. Now we're talking about paying for sin. The agony that he bore was because he joined himself to us as well as our representative. He became sin for us who knew no sin. 
that we might be made the righteousness of God. Not only do we obtain his righteousness, but he also had to obtain our sin, as it were, to bear our sin. So that the punishment he bore, he bore for us. He had to be punished for reputing, for repudiating God. Because that's what we did. When you see your sin as a repudiation of God, you also see more fully the standard to which you come when you come back to God. The standard of God's house to which you, by which you live and which you seek to attain. You see that you have yet a long way to go. You become quite aware of that. But this doesn't discourage you because you're in the care of your gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, who is sent to save you and he's given you his spirit and promise and he's working in you. Rather than being beaten down by the high calling and wanting to lower the high calling, you aspire to it as your calling that he will actually enable you to attain. You might liken it to being in an art class and told that you will be able to paint like one of the masters. Well, you aren't discouraged if you know that you're going to be able to paint like the master that you can't paint like him now. It, it, it motivates you because you know your painting doesn't, doesn't compare with the, the painting of that master, but you've got a promise that you're going to be able to paint like he paints. And now you, you're ready to go to work by by grace, you will be like your master. What a beautiful way it is to which we have been called to truly be brought to the Father, to Him personally, to be able to live before Him, not merely as a rule keeper, but as one who responds to Him as your God, as one who really loves Him and lives for Him and honors Him, you see, when we've been born again, like it says in 1 John, we can't set aside the new standard under which we live. We can't be lawlessness anymore. That's what John means there when he says you, you can't sin. He doesn't mean that we don't still commit sins, but he means we don't say, oh, I'm going to move back over to this other standard. No, no, no. I, I, I'm going to always, now I've been brought to God, I'm going to live under this standard. I stumble along in it sometimes, but... I'm, I'm aspiring to this. This is, this is what I'm under as my rule of life now. You see the great love of God who has taken you into his family and put you on nothing less than a trajectory to glory. It's right in our passage, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. In Christ, we're going to reach the final goal. And be free of sin at last. Right in the middle of the passage we read about sin. There is this wonderful promise that one day we will see Christ in glory and our sin will be gone. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world doesn't live under this standard. It doesn't know this personal God that we now are his children. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like the master, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What are you going to do in that art class 
You're going to listen. You're going to work. You're going to seek. You're going to pursue. You're going to ask for help because you got a promise. I'm going to paint like the master. I'm going to be like him. God has made us his children and he is at work in us, not only to bring us from glory to glory, but to bring us to the full glory at the last day when we see him. Please stand and let's ask God to help us. Gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, how is it that you could be so merciful to us that we should be called the sons of God? Lord, you are angry with us, but your anger is turned away. What a marvelous thing it is. Father, how could it be that you could receive sinners like us? How could it be that you would care to even bother to redeem such as us? Father, truly, it is a great love, it is the great love of yours that caused you to send your son into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Father, we praise you that the gospel has gone into all the earth and that there is the proclamation of that gospel around the world, that whoever believes, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray, O Lord, that, that we would come with joy and gladness to be your children, Lord, to live with you as our God once again, to live in your house, Lord, to live by the standard of your house, to live in a way that pleases you, which is what it is to live by the standard of your house. It's not some arbitrary rule. You are pleased when we don't lie about what we're selling to our neighbor and pretend like there's more gold in it. You're pleased when we give to those that have need. You're pleased when your children live in ways that are beautiful and lovely, when we cherish our husband and cherish our wife and live together in the ordinance that you have appointed of marriage. Father, we pray that you would that you would help us, O oh Lord, that we would delight in your law. We think about David who said how he delights in the law of God from the inward man. Lord, we pray that we pray that this would be what we do. Uh, Paul said that too and uh, that he delighted in the inward man. Lord, we pray that that you would give us some that kind of a heart. And Father, that living that way, that we would indeed purify ourselves as, as truly our master is pure, that we would become more and more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ in those, those beautiful, attractive ways. Oh, Father, help us to, um, to keep our eyes on Christ and to rely upon the Holy Spirit and to, to feed upon your word, Lord. We will starve and we won't grow and we won't become more like Christ if we don't feed on the word. Help us, Lord, to look for help, to pray and to cry out to you, Lord, for your your mercy and, and grace. We pray that we would also remember to pray for one another in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To the standard that is God's way. Please now receive the blessing of our God, the blessing of his grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.